I'm going to share some things with you over the course of the next few minutes that honestly I have absolutely no idea if they're accurate or not. But I kind of hope they are because I was that intrigued when I found these things. So I'm really hoping that they're true and legitimate. If not, that's okay. Humor me. Here's how this all came about. I was looking for unique. Actually, the term I used was goofy terms of measurement. And after an extensive internet search, which lasted all of 60 seconds, I found myself at a, a website called pingdom.com, and I hit the mother load. I was looking, typed into my search engine, goofy rules of measurement, and all of these popped up. This is, this is good stuff. Now, I know it's not life-changing. I know it's not biblical. I know it's not going to stir you to the depths of your soul. Just hang with me through this. There's a point for it. Beginning with this one, Pingdom.com says that there is a rule or a term of measurement called the beard second. Here it is up on the screen. It measures distance. Now, let me give you the definition of it. It's a unit inspired by the light year, but for extremely short distances. A beard second is defined as the length an average physicist beard grows in a second, and that's about five nanometers. Now, you may have a lot of people that you work with throughout the course of every day that move at the speed of a beard second. And you're wondering, well, you can actually use that now. But if you don't like that one and you're still trying to measure distance, maybe you want to use the moot scale. One smoot is defined to be equal to five feet and seven inches, the height of Oliver R. Smoot. He was an MIT student whose fraternity pledge in 1958 was to be used to measure the length of the Harvard Bridge. The bridge's length was measured to be 364.4 smoots, plus or minus one ear. Pretty good. If you don't like that one and you're still measuring distance, maybe you want to use the megalithic yard system. After analyzing survey data from over 250 stone circles in England and Scotland, Scottish professor of engineering, Alexander Tom, came to the conclusion that there must have been a common unit of measure, which he called a megalithic yard, which is the equivalent of .9074 yards. There are few people besides Justin Picard in this audience right now that would care about this type of stuff, but he would be inspired by the pyramid inch. Claimed by pyramidologists, never heard of those, to have been used in ancient times. A pyramid inch was 125th of a sacred cubit, or just over one inch. Now again, with distance, if you're not liking any of these, maybe it gets a little more practical with the shepi. A shepi is defined as the closest distance at which sheep remain picturesque, which is about seven-eighths of a mile. So there you go. Now you've got, now you've got the Sheppy or the Mickey. One Mickey named after Mickey Mouse is the length of the smallest detectable movement of a computer mouse. This is about 0.1 millimeters, but its exact size depends on the equipment used. Now all of that's distance. That's engineering kind of stuff. We'll make this a little more practical. There are unique, goofy ways of measuring time as well, like this, the shake. In nuclear engineering and astrophysics, a shake, taken from two shakes of a lamb's tail, an old colloquial expression, is defined as 10 nanoseconds. That's a shake. So if somebody says, I'll be back in just a shake, they're probably lying. It would be better for them if they would actually say, I'll be back in a jiffy. Now here's the jiffy. The jiffy comes from the computing field. 
One jiffy is the duration of one tick of the system timer interrupt. This is usually one-tenth of a second. But in some earlier systems, such as the Commodore 8-bit computers, the jiffy was defined as one-sixtieth of a second, roughly equal to the frequency of AC electric power in North America and the vert vertical blanking of NTS screens. Dean, have you ever heard the jiffy? You have. That's actually a legitimate term. Oh, man, we're on to something. Then this next one, this next one's really going to inspire you. It's my favorite. Donkey power is a playful engineering unit defined as 250 watts, approximately one-third of a horsepower. Now, I did a little digging around on donkey power, and I discovered that General Motors uses that to measure the power of their engines. <laughs> oh, come on! Ford. <clears throat> Maybe... Maybe you want to measure coolness with the megafonzi. A megafonzi is a unit for measuring an object's coolness invented by Professor Farnsworth in the Futurama TV series. One fonzi is the amount of coolness of the character Fonzie from Happy Days. Gets even more practical with measuring smell by hobo power. Coined by Adam Carolla and Dr. Drew on the radio show Loveline as a measure of how bad something smells ranging from 0 to 100. Anything near 100 hobo would smell bad enough to cause death by asphyxiation. <laughs> Here's the last one. The Warhol measures fame and time. Derived from Andy Warhol's statement that everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes. A Warhol represents 15 minutes of fame. It can be used in multiples, like the one kilo Warhol, famous for 15,000 minutes, or 10.42 days, or one mega Warhol, famous for 15 million minutes, or 28.5 years. Like I say, that, that has no eternal impact on anything. It may not inspire your heart at all, but maybe where we're going with it will. I share all of that with you to tell you that there is another unit of measurement that you may not be familiar with, but you should be. It is used to measure our faith. And I want to show it to you so you see it for yourself. Don't believe me on this. You believe the Bible. Let's open up to Romans chapter 12, verse 3. We've been in a study on this chapter for the past several weeks, and we're going to still be here for several more. Romans chapter 12 has a lot to teach. This faith measurement is one of the deep things recorded here. Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according, listen to this, to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now for the next few minutes, I want to take off my preacher hat and put on a guide hat. I want to guide you through scripture. More than preaching, I just want the Bible to speak for itself. And so we're going to look at a lot. You keep your Bible right in front of you and keep it open. I want you to see these things all for yourself. Beginning with this idea that Paul would put forward. He says, I say to everyone among you. Now, a lot of people skip over Romans chapter 12, verse 3 in their study of this chapter because they believe it doesn't apply to them. 
when he says, I want to speak to everyone among you, they think that just means the Romans, the audience that Paul was writing to, those that he intended to read this book originally. But the truth of the matter is, the original language would speak of that everyone among you term this way. I want every person, every person in the faith, every person that would ever read this book to pay attention to this, every person that would ever find their way into Christ, I want everyone among you to listen closely. That's what he's really saying. So that means you. That means me. And when we see a statement like that in Scripture that puts all of us together, we need to sit up and pay attention because this applies to us. We need to listen closely to what he's talking about. Now, in this particular application, Paul is going to be talking about spiritual giftedness, and we're going to get into that next week, so I don't want to run too far ahead of myself. Just come back next week. We're going to be talking about the spiritual gifts that every believer has. But there is also the application of faith in this passage. And when he talks about a measure of faith being given to us by God, and he addresses that to everyone, we have to listen. We have to pay attention. This gift of faith given to us by God has caused a lot of confusion through the years. It really has. A doctrine rose out of verses like this that's caused a lot of people to stumble over and over and over again. The doctrine is called predestination. Predestination teaches that God predetermined those that would be saved. The problem with that, and it doesn't sit very far below the surface. The problem with God predetermining those that would be saved says on the flip side that God predetermined those that would be lost. And that's the biggest stumbling block with predestination. And the Bible would speak directly to it. Now, as I say, I want to be a guide. I want to take us through a number of different books of the Bible so that the Bible can actually line all this out for us. So we're going to leave the Apostle Paul now, and we're going to go to the Apostle Peter and let Peter speak to the issue of predestination. Join me in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Keep your finger in Romans chapter 12, but go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Here's what Peter writes. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now that's the will of God. That is the nature of God. The will and the nature of God, the very essence of God says, he doesn't want anybody to perish. So predestination, teaching that God predetermined those that would be saved, therefore he predetermined those that would be lost, stumbles right there. It stumbles over the nature and the character, the will, the design, the desire. Everything that makes God who he is struggles against this doctrine of predestination. John chapter 3, verse 16 would actually speak to the same thing. Let's all say it together. For God so loved the world. Therefore, we cannot say that God loves specific people within creation enough that he would save them, and the rest were left to their own devices. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have eternal life. So now, back in Romans chapter 12, we have Paul saying to every one of us that we have a God-given measure of faith. 
The Lord gave it to us. But we have to wonder what that looks like. We have to wonder what that measure of faith really is. It begins in grace. In grace, God says, I want every person to come and know me, and I will make that possible. Take a look at the book of Ephesians with me. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Ephesians 2, verse 8. And we're going to go on into verse 9 as well. Now, this is the Apostle Paul speaking again. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We have been saved by grace, and faith follows. Now, here's how you put all that together. God has extended to us the grace of salvation through his Son, Jesus Christ, and he has given every person... He has given every person, say it with me, he has given every person the measure of faith necessary to respond to grace. Every person has that. Every person is wired up with that measure of faith to respond to grace. And by doing that, we find this great leveler that grace is. You've heard me say that over and over and over again. Grace is the great leveler of all humanity. When we come to Christ, when we respond to the grace of Jesus Christ, when we respond to his death, burial, and resurrection, and we utilize that small measure of faith that God has given every one of us that we might do that, it does not matter what our past looks like. It does not matter the sins that you have committed. Every one of us is a sinner in need of a Savior, and grace helps us understand that. We're all on a level playing field, every one of us. We all need Jesus, and the only way that we're going to get to heaven is through him. The only way that we're going to have a relationship with God is through him. It is not by works so that no one can boast. No one can brag about what we do on our own steam. Paul would actually illustrate his own story this way in the book of 1 Timothy, starting in verse 12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen, he says. Well, tucked back in verse 14, Paul gives us the pattern. Here it is again. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. That faith that responded to grace was the salvation faith that progressed into a love for other people. That's the God-given measure of faith. That's how the Lord does it. And he does it in such a way that it will keep us from ever boasting about ourselves and only boasting in him. So we continue down this path. Remember, today I'm not a preacher, I'm a guide. I want you to see what Paul says about that type of grace. This is found in the book of 2 Corinthians, starting in verse 16. 
He says, I repeat, let no one think of me foolish, but even if you do accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantages of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and am I not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Going on in chapter 12, he says, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ then. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul is illustrating beautifully the depth of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. And because the Lord knew that Paul might have a propensity for it, Paul lays it out himself. He says, because of that, because of the way I am wired and the way I am made up, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. So bad that three times I pled with the Lord to take it away and God would not do it. So that Paul could only boast in the grace of God and not on his own power. That's it. That's grace. And Paul says from that type of grace, faith grows Faith comes out of that. When we understand that really apart from Christ, we have nothing and we are nothing. 
That's the place that faith begins. And it starts to take off. I like the way the psalmist says this. In Psalm chapter 44, verse 8, he says, In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. That's somebody who understands that without God, I have nothing and I am nothing. So I'll boast in him forever. I'll boast in the grace that God has given me because his grace is sufficient for my weaknesses. His grace is enough. That's all I need. That's all I need. You may have never realized that the struggles of life are actually a grace given to us from God that cause us to look to him that we might rely on him. But they are. That's what some of those struggles are. They are a grace given to you by the Lord that you might recognize who he is and what he is doing in your life. And you might hold tight. The Bible would say hold fast to him. That's a grace. And it's given to us that our faith might increase. And it begins with that measurable faith that Paul talks about back in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. That is actually measurable within our life. All we have to do is apply the right scale to it. Now you might say, what is that scale? And that's exactly what you should ask. As you come across that idea that we all have a measure of faith given to us by God, your first question should be, what is it? Well, it begins in grace, in the faith that is within us, the measure of faith that we all have to respond to grace unto salvation. But from there, there are other measurable faiths within us. Now, here's how you measure them. This is the good part of this whole message. Let's go to the book of 2 Thessalonians together. I want you to turn there from Romans chapter 12, verse 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. You may want to connect these in the margin of your Bible because this is a perfect example of the Bible explaining itself. You have to study the whole of Scripture in order to understand the parts of Scripture. If you study the Bible solely trying to understand the parts without the whole, you're going to come up wanting more often than not. So you have to put all of it together. And Romans chapter 12, verse 3 is a great example of that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3 helps us. Now here's what Paul says. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Here's how you measure your faith. You measure it in terms of its growth. So every time you come across something in scripture or at church or in the life of another believer, your first question has to be, how am I doing in that regard? How am I doing with this? And then your next question needs to be, is that part of my faith increasing abundantly? Is it growing or have I stagnated? Have I stopped? Have I never embraced it? Is it increasing? Because the measure of faith is one of increasing. It is an abundant measurement. Now I want to show you through just five examples how this works. We're going to wrap up in just a minute. Stay with me through these five things because these are all really good ways of looking at how we measure our faith, the faith that God gave us that we might believe unto salvation and then grow. Starting with, because this is the easiest thing for all of us to grab hold of, relationships. 
faith applies to relationships. Our knowledge of who God is and our desire to do things His way applies in this universal realm, the relationships that we have with other people. Now, let's start with just marriage. For those of you that are married, you're going to understand this. There are a lot of people that will come and they will say to me or they'll talk to Dini or they'll talk to one of our elders, they'll talk to our staff, and they'll say, boy, we have marriage problems. And one of the first questions that we need to ask is, are you applying the biblical principles? If you're a believer, are you applying the biblical principles? Which, by the way, I've had a number of people through the years that have come to me and said, hey, I need help with my marriage, but I don't want any of that Jesus stuff. At which time I've had to say, I'm the wrong counselor for you because that's all I've got. So I got some Jesus stuff, but if you don't want that, you need to go someplace else. So the Bible speaks to these issues. When marriages are struggling, Scripture speaks directly to it. So the natural question has to be, are you applying what the Bible says? And here's a great place to start, Ephesians chapter 5. Take a look at this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So we'll say to the ladies, how are you doing with this? Let's just figure out what the baseline is. How are you doing with what scripture has to say? And fellas, you might say, whoo, that's what I like to hear. Let's start with the ladies and find out how they're doing. It turns pretty quick. Because then we say to the guys, how are you doing with this part? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So then we look at the husband and we say, how are you doing with what the Bible says? And once they figure out how they're doing, the question is, now how do you increase those things? How do you take your faith, your belief that God has answers for everything, apply it to the struggles within your marriage, and then increase that? That's just a simple way of looking at marriage counseling. It's a simple way of looking at increasing faith, but it works, and it works beautifully. And I would say this to people that would look at this and say, yeah, I know that, but we're not doing any of it. Then my answer is, you don't have a marriage problem, you have a faith problem. And really, that's the truth of it. You don't have a marriage problem, you have a faith problem. So let's address the faith that we might get into the marriage. Now, there are other relationships that this whole idea applies to as well. It's not just between husband and wife. It might bleed over into friendship issues. And the Bible speaks to those as well. Take a look at this. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. If somebody were to come to us and say, gosh, I'm really struggling in some of my relationships, my friendships, if we were to look at the relationship and recognize that this person believes that they have the ability to sharpen other people, but they cannot be sharpened themselves, then that's a problem. Which means I can say hard things to other people, but nobody better dare say hard things to me. Well, that's going to isolate. That's going to cause your relationships to fall away if you don't have the type of reciprocal relationship that says we can be sharpened by one another. And if that's the case, you don't have a friendship problem, you have a faith problem. And you have to address it at that level because this is what the Bible says. And if I'm going to have an increasing measure of faith, I have to start doing what Scripture says, even though it might be hard, even though it might hurt, even though it might be painful at times. 
yet the end result is always God's result. So we have to do that. Now, there are other places where this gets even more pointed and painful like this. In the realm of forgiveness, we carry around with us like an anchor tied to our leg, hurts of the past, the ways that people have wronged us or we have perceived their wrongs. And if enough of those build up, they turn into bitterness, and bitterness becomes an ugly root in a person's life. So the Bible speaks over and over and over again about forgiveness, and it speaks so powerfully that the Lord would say through the inspiration of Scripture that this matters to me so much that I want you to reconcile with other people and then come back to me. show you what I mean. Matthew 5. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Bible teaches that you need to not have a rift between you and other people, and if you do, you be careful about what you're giving to God, and you be careful about the Lord's Supper. You reconcile those relationships, and then come to me. That's how important this is to God. And if you have a forgiveness problem that you refuse to reconcile with other people, it can quickly turn into a faith problem. So we have to deal with that. See how this becomes so personal, this measure of faith? And if we're going to see it increasing, it requires a lot of hard work. It requires sometimes painful work. But we do that, that we might have the measure of faith measuring the way God wants us to. Now, there are other ways that this applies, like this, in praying. A lot of folks will, will say, man, I've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, but it doesn't seem like God comes near me very often. I've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, and it seems like the door is shut. God's just not even listening to me. Well, here's a great way of asking yourself how your faith is doing in the realm of praying. A lot of people are able to say, I can ask, as Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 tells me to, but that's where they stop. Listen to the rest of the verse. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. You can ask, but if you don't seek, which means seeking out God's answer for whatever it is you're praying about, you might do that through quietness. You might do that through opening your Bible. You might do that through seeking the wisdom of others. If you don't seek God's answer, then all you did was ask. You pounded away with words, but you didn't care to hear anything back. So you have to seek the answer. And once you find the answer, then here's the third part of this whole process. Then you knock on God's door again and say, Lord, I found the answer. And now I need you to go with me. Because sometimes the answer is going to require God's power because you don't have enough on your own. Lord, I need your strength. I need your help. I need your ability. I need your wisdom. I need you to guide, whatever the application might be. So it's a three-part process. Ask, seek, knock. And in increasing measure, we start with the asking part, and then we progress into the seeking, and then we recognize that with every answer, we need to knock and ask the Lord for the next step. That's how it works. Increasing measure. There are other applications, like giving. Giving's really a, a really practical way to do this. And we have a number of people in this church that excel at the grace of giving. And as a result of that, the kingdom of God and Libby through Libby Christian Church has been able to do some really great things in other churches as well. But the grace of giving through this congregation is pretty dramatic. And the things that, that are accomplished for the kingdom are pretty dramatic. Just look at our change for a dollar ministry. Forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 went back into our community one dollar at a time. 
And now, because of your generosity, we're going to be able to send a lot of people on the mission field through Change the World. A lot of that money that's been given in the past few weeks is going to help people get to Florida to help other people there. That's part of the grace of giving and the generosity of the church. But there's a number of people that have never tapped into this grace. They've never tried it. For whatever reason, they've said, I can't. I hear those conversations all the time. Deanie hears those conversations all the time. Boy, I can't give right now because we can't pay our mortgage. There's no way that, that we can actually embrace that grace because we just don't have enough money. Well, see, here's the upside-down logic of that. Here it is, right here. Take a look. Given it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So God's economy says you give first and then you take care of those other things later. I would love to tell you how it works. I can't. It just works because God said do it that way. But there's people that will say, I can't. Well, then stay where you're at. But try it God's way and with that measure of faith that you have in the very beginning, you increase it and see what God does. I can't tell you why it is that God said, you give to me first and I'll help you take care of the rest, but if you give to me last, you're going to struggle all the way through, or if you don't give to me at all, you're going to struggle all the way through, but he did. And this is how much our leaders actually believe in this. There is a challenge that is always available. We call it the elder's challenge to people that have never tried tithing before. If you'll try it for 90 days... And you have to go to one of our elders and tell them, hey, I'm going to accept the challenge. You try it for 90 days. At the end of those 90 days, if God has not proven himself faithful, they will give you back every dime that you've ever given to the church. They'll cut you a check and say, there you go. So you try it. You try it. Now, the elders are pretty bold in their ability to do that because this is the area where God said, test me. See what happens. Yet people won't do it. So you have to look at the measure of faith that you have in the realm of giving and then see what happens from there as it increases. The Bible says in Matthew or in Luke chapter 6 that the measure will be pressed down, shaken together, and running over as it comes back to you. So you try it. And there are other places like this, caring for other people that follow this whole thing. When we start caring about the needs of other people, we get to see God do something pretty special as well. And that's all part of increasing our faith. We have up here the story of the Good Samaritan, and I encourage you to read it. It's found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Spend some time in that story and see what happens. It is a story that begins in faith unto salvation, and it ends in caring about other people, which takes us all the way back to a measured faith says that I will love the Lord my God with all that I have and I will love my neighbor as myself. That's what it all boils down to. And each of those increases through the years. So you ask yourself, am I increasing? But when you come across things like this, if you hear about it and you do nothing with it, a man that wrestled with his own faith issues would write this in scripture. Interestingly enough, his name is James. He was the half-brother of Jesus. And until the resurrection, he did not believe that his brother was the Messiah. He couldn't. But after the resurrection, after he recognized the truth of his brother, everything changed. Same way for us. People will wrestle with their faith over and over and over again until they see the resurrected Christ. 
until they realize that their sins have been covered by the blood of the Lamb and they stand redeemed before a perfect God because of that. James would actually say, and, and the power of this is his own wrestling match, he would say this, Know this, my beloved brothers, this is in James chapter 1, verse 19. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So James says very simply, if you want your faith to be measured, you have to look at every aspect of it, ask the hard questions, apply the hard principles of the Bible to it, and determine whether you're doing what the Bible says. And if you are, are you doing it better? Are you increasing all the time? Because a measured faith is an, an increasing faith, always. That's the way it works. The Lord gave you enough all the way through. And every step of the way, there is enough grace for whatever it is that you face. You just trust God and do what he says. That's the way it works. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father, we're coming before you now, placing ourselves right at your feet. Many of us have trusted you unto salvation, and we trust you for the rest of our lives. So, Lord, our goal is to do what you say and to follow you. I pray you'll help us accomplish that. Father, others haven't trusted you yet. I pray they will today. And then I pray that their faith that follows that grace will grow abundantly. They'll be able to measure it. That it'll be so visible that they can't help but see it. I pray that to be the case for every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.